0: Morning, y'all. It's good to be with you. Technology, sometimes it does not cooperate. All right. Well, I was an atheist, and I grew up in an atheistic household. Now, when I say that, that might bring certain things to your mind, but it's Some might be good, some might be bad, I don't know. But I do want to say this for sure, I actually grew up in a good household. Uh, I had good parents, and they did a good job. They really did, and I want to make sure I honor and respect them in that. They taught me to think very critically. They taught me to try to live at peace with others and to be a good citizen of the United States and all those things that we normally do as we try to raise our kids the best we can. At the same time, they taught me to be skeptical about religion, that Christianity was stupid, and so we never really attended church, and we never needed it. So I grew up not ever thinking about it, not thinking about any need for that, anything supernatural, spiritual, none of that. I went to Texas A&M, and uh, no whoops this time. First service, somebody whooped, but that's okay. I went to Texas A&M and studied civil engineering, and then I went and got a Master's from the University of Illinois in Structural Engineering. Uh, My wife Natalie was here in the first service. She's actually lost her voice. She's not feeling super great, but uh, she was here early service. Uh, We've been married 35 years. It's coming Monday, uh, like tomorrow, actually. (laughs) Thanks. All right, appreciate that. Uh, So she grew up in a Lutheran home, and she was the youngest of three daughters. and, And when she turned 13, she got confirmed. And her parents said, Awesome. Last one's done. We don't have to go anymore to church. So we're done. And so Natalie basically grew up with a few Bible stories and and a confirmation, and and that was that. We got married. She was my high school sweetheart. We got married, and um, uh, she was 19. I was 20, uh, right in the middle between my sophomore and junior years at Texas A&M. And um, she followed me to Illinois for graduate school and then to a first job in Dallas as an engineer, and that's where our son Trevor was born. And then we ultimately moved back to Austin, Texas, and, and, uh, and that's where our daughter Keely was born. I was a structural engineer project manager and then a director of operations, but I also owned a software company uh, for many years, and I, I think uh, Pastor Chris had mentioned that last week. So uh, I had a software company back in the Windows 95 days. Anybody remember Windows 95? Seeing a few nods out there, thank you, gray hair, it's good. (laughs) So everything was going good, right? I mean, that's kind of the American dream, right? You get a house, you got a couple of kids, you got a good paying job, you're working hard, you know, putting your hand to the plow and working on things. A good job, good family. But along the way, you know, everything's not really quite so perfect in real life. So, God, along the way, gave me some different opportunities to hear and maybe think over some things that I had kind of just made as assumptions, you know, as growing up as an atheist. So, the first one was actually when I was working in that company in Dallas. It's 1992. There was a lady named Kathy Bowman, and she was the secretary for our entire structural engineering department. And uh, I I was kind of walking by her desk, and I was singing. Running with the Devil by Van Halen. Anybody remember Running with the Devil by Van Halen? I got a few few more nods. There you go. All right, that's okay. You don't have to be ashamed. It's okay. So so I'm singing that, Running with the Devil, and she just stops me. She goes, do you really want to run with the devil? And I go, no, I don't think so. (laughs) And she's like, you really don't. And that was it. So I kind of went back to my cube, and I'm, thinking to myself, well, is there a devil? Is there really a devil? If so, why is there a devil? Does that make any sense? And if there's a devil, is there actually a God? And is any of this stuff true? Right? So that's just kind of a little seed that, you know, a little stone, I guess, in my shoe that i kind of stepping on that's a bit of a nugget. Then in 1995, Natalie's dad, my father-in-law, Fred, he was diagnosed with a kidney disorder that ultimately was going to take his, his life. And uh, it was right around that time that this deep seated fear of death took root in my life. And I started waking up shortly after I found out with night terrors. Serious anxiety at night. Anybody familiar with what a night terror is? You don't have to raise your hand, that's fine. But the first time I remember the first time it happened, I woke up just in this horrible panic and I thought my heart had stopped beating. So I called 911 and I said, My heart stopped beating. And the lady goes, if your heart stopped beating, you would not be calling me. (laughs) And I said, okay, you're right, you're right. Uh, But they sent the ambulance anyway. But this fear basically took root in my life. And for three years, I just had night terrors, two, three, sometimes four times a week. I was just miserable. You put on this front on the outside, you go to work, everything's great, but on the inside, you're just a mess, fearful, right? So you go to doctors, and the doctors do what doctors do, and they give you some Xanax. So you take some of that, and whenever you get anxiety or something, you go to a psychologist, and, and the one I went to taught me how to hyperventilate properly, as if there is a way to hyperventilate properly. <laughs> so these things, basically, this fear of death, just at its root is this, what's going to happen when I die? And came to that kind of sobering reality that I cannot escape this. There's really nothing that I can do to stop from dying. There's actually nothing any of us can do to stop from dying. So put on this face, though, but inside I'm pretty miserable. Deep fear of death. And so just like, you know, any good American, I began to spend money, or really any good individual, to fill that void, right? So you're kind of miserable. So you go out and you buy something, right? And then, you know, maybe a few chemicals kind of pick up in your brain and you're like, oh, I feel pretty good for about, you know, 48 hours or 24 sometimes. You're like, why did I buy that, right? But you spend some money to fill the void. Uh, This insecurity that that kind of develops in a person, like, who am I really? And, you know, I'm uh, all that's kind of rooted in fear and only really later realize that the Bible talked about me, and it talks about you. It talks about everybody in the world and why these things are the way they are. So in some ways, really the best thing that happened to me and really can happen to you is to experience at times what I'm calling here kind of the hot fear of death. You know what I'm talking about? Where you're, you just you get some quiet moments, and you're really just kind of introspective, and you're thinking to yourself, and all of a sudden you realize... I'm going to die. And you can't really do anything about it because it's just there and you know it's true and you actually kind of get this hot fear of death. You're confronted with this inescapability of death. So kind of move on a bit, right? So um, there was a guy, Dan, that worked for me at the time. And all I knew was he was, you know, this Christian guy. So, So sometime in 1997, maybe summer of 97 or so, Dane and I are driving to a site together, and I start just grilling him. You don't really believe in all this God garbage, do you? And I don't really remember all my questions I grilled him with. I don't even remember all of his answers. But what did stick with me is he was firmly convinced. He said, yeah, I do. And he was not going to back down on that conviction. Now, what he did, though, was the right thing. He went back to his small group at a first evangelical free church in Austin, and they started to pray for me every week for about six months, which I only found that out later as well. But in January of 1998, I came home from work early. So in those days, I was basically working as an engineer all day long, coming home, eating dinner, spending a little time, with, little time with Natalie and the kids, and then running my software company in the evening. So coding, basically until the late hours. Not very good for family life, I would just say. So we were probably on the road to divorce. But in January at 2 p.m., I came home from work early, and I checked the mail, something I normally didn't do. Now they usually got the mail, but I checked the mail that day. And inside the mailbox was this little piece of paper, this little mailer. And it said, don't check your brain in at the door. I had this little picture, this goofy little pastor down here in the lower left, and he was going to talk about some topics over the next number of weeks. The church was called Lakeline Church. Week number one, he was going to talk about, is it okay to have doubts? And that question stuck with me right away because I knew it was rhetorical. I knew the answer was going to be, yes, it's okay to have doubts. So then I thought to myself, well, maybe this is somebody that I could actually ask some questions of where I wouldn't feel like an idiot. You know? Because, of course, you know, somebody says, well, do you know about Jesus? Do you know about the Bible? Do you know about… Well, of course I do. Right? Because, you know, I'm an American citizen. Of course I know that. Right? But I didn't. Right? But that rhetorical question is going to have doubts. And then, does God exist with me the week after? And is Jesus God? And is there a heaven and a hell? So I kind of stuck that little mailer in my bag, and then I gave Natalie the rest of the mail. And I'm really glad. I mean, if Natalie would check that mail that day, I guarantee you she would have just tossed that because she's not a fan of the junk mail in her mind, right? But I stuck that in my bag, and a few days later, I pulled it out and I looked at it again. And I walked over to Natalie, and I said, I think I'm going to go to this. I said, but I don't want you and the kids to go in case it's you know some kind of weird cult or something like that. <laughs> Turned out it was a Baptist church, by the way. <laughs> So I went to the first week, and guess what? It is okay to have doubts. And then I went to the subsequent weeks, and I took the family with me. And then finally I got up the Courage, and I said, Pastor Brian, I said, uh, I'd like to ask you a few questions. Can we meet? He said, sure, where do you live? I said, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> I, I'm not making that part up. I'm actually very skeptical and very suspicious of organized religion. So I said, well, you know this park over here? He said, yeah, I know that park over there. I said, can we meet there? So two grown men met in the children's park from 8.30 at night till 1.30 in the morning. What's more suspicious? Anyway, I don't know. But I was able to just ask him all my questions, just sitting there at a park bench. It's the first time in my life, other than the sermon that I'd been to, where I heard rational answers. Evidence for the existence of God. Evidence, good, solid answers of why evil exists in the world. Is the Bible true? How can we know that the Bible is true? So all of that is percolating in my head. And, and then in March, on March 31st, 1998, at 9.30 p.m., sitting at my kitchen table, I finally let Pastor Brian come over, just so you know. I said, Lord, my life is a mess. I've got this horrible fear of death. I don't know what's going to happen when I'm dying. I die. I don't treat people well. I'm workaholic. I mean, you go on. You name the list. I confessed. I said, I can't fix myself. Jesus, please save me. And something remarkable happened. You know, I didn't start glowing or anything. No halo popped over my head. I didn't uh, get struck by lightning. But I had this little sense of joy in my heart. And I just had this peace. I mean, I remember I was crying. And the Bible actually talks about that moment. It says in Ephesians, in the book of Ephesians, in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, that it says, you also having believed have been marked with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. And so in that moment, I was marked with this seal, you know, like a stamp this down payment, um, this idea of God's Spirit coming and living inside of me. Uh, sometimes it's called the Spirit of Christ in the Bible. Sometimes it's called the Holy Spirit, and in, like in some churches and circles, it's called the Holy Ghost, you might have heard that. Um, which is just in old English, is the idea of Spirit, right? So, but Holy Spirit. But the Bible also says comforter is the term for the, this Holy Spirit. But the Bible says that when, when you believe, when you confess and believe, that Holy Spirit comes inside. So that night, no night terror. In fact, I've never actually had another night terror. The Bible talks about that as well. There's a passage, the Apostle Paul writes, Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is gone. And that sting was basically removed at that point. Now it doesn't mean I never got anxious again or never had fear. You guys all know that, you know, courage isn't the absence of fear, it's actually doing what's right in the middle of fear, right? So it's not that we don't have fear at times, but that deep seated fear of death was gone. Now, the next morning, something else miraculous happened. I started reading my Bible for the first time ever pastor had given me a good place to start. I ultimately quickly started reading it systematically. I wanted to read all of it, make sure I knew it, understood it. But the first time I read it, it actually made sense. Anytime I kind of picked it up before, it didn't make any sense to me. Again, that Holy Spirit is inside kind of guiding and directing and helping me understand these things. Also, as I'm reading, I just knew that what I was reading was true. And when I saw a command in the Bible or I saw some example to follow, I found that I was actually able to obey it, and I wanted to obey it. Something inside me had changed, and I knew that it would transform me, and I just was, began to be full of joy. Um, and at that moment, God's Word, coupled with God's Holy Spirit, began to set me free from being a slave to my self-centeredness, of which there is no bottom, typically. Obviously, I loved money. Did my love of money go away the, the very day I accepted Jesus? No, right? It, pro- it was a, probably a, a month or two later. I'm reading in a book of the Bible called Matthew where Jesus says, you cannot serve God and money. And then another place in the Bible that says, what good is it for a man, a person, to gain the whole world but forfeit their soul? And at that point, I'm presented with a dilemma. Well, do I adjust my priorities and and serve God instead of money, or or do I still try to serve both? Do I try to have two allegiances? And um, fortunately, I made that decision to be obedient, and and God himself helped me to be obedient in that case. Within the first couple of months, I had taken all my pornography out of the house and gotten rid of it because I realized that, really, that was wrong, very wrong. Uh, It also dishonored my wife as well as dishonored God. I got rid of all my bootleg DVDs. You guys remember bootleg DVDs? Anyway, got rid of all my bootleg things, stuff that I had stolen, basically. And in the midst of all of that, my relationships begin to change. Right, I'm treating my wife better. I'm treating my children better. They're seeing the difference in my life. So you jump to June of 1998. So just a few months later, I walk into the kitchen, come home from work, walk into the kitchen. And by the way, I'd given up the computer software company because it really was not conducive to the amount of time I needed to spend with my family. All right, so just back to structural engineering. But I had come home from work, and Natalie was in there doing the dishes, and she was at the dishwasher loading. And she just says real softly as I walk in the room behind her, I don't think I have what you have. And I said, well, you can have it today if you want. And so I got to lead her into that same confession and prayer that I had done. And she gave her life to Christ that day. And then we had the privilege of leading our children to follow Jesus as well. So as I continued to read the Bible, uh, as often as I could, and now Natalie as well, um, I practiced what I learned. I started going to church, obviously, and and actually living in community with others who were doing the same thing. I started sharing with others what I've learned and, and what I'd experienced. And then God began to Show me, as I did these things, how He would use my engineering and my software development, and my hands and my heart and my voice and my mind, for His own purposes. So, in January of 1999, I was reading another book of the Bible called Jeremiah, and I come across a verse, Jeremiah 20, verse 9. So, at that particular moment in Jeremiah's life, he had just gotten done telling God, "You know, I've been Your spokesman for a while, and I'm gonna—I don't want to be anymore. I'm done." So that's one cool thing about the Bible is everybody's pretty real in there, right? So Jeremiah says, I'm done. But then he suddenly just gets this overwhelming conviction. In verse 20, or chapter 20, verse 9, he says, if I say that I'll speak no more in his name, his word is shut up in my bones like a fire. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. And that just, when I read it, it just kind of exploded off the page of me, and I said, Lord. I commit that whatever you want me to say, whenever you want me to say it, I'll say it. So I went and told Pastor Brian that. And he said, the Lord might have something else for you in addition to your engineering. You might consider going to seminary. So I went home and talked to Natalie about it. We prayed about it. and Basically, by, at that point, I was the director of operations of an engineering company I had mentioned. I actually left that line of work. Talk to another employer first, by the way. Young people, don't quit your job before you have another one. Just a good, sound word of advice. So, unless the Lord really tells you to. But don't use that as an excuse. All right, so. Ended up going back to a previous engineering firm where I could work as a project manager four days a week and go to school on Mondays at Southwestern Seminary. A few months after that, basically, the church asked me to be the discipleship pastor. It was a church plant, and... And uh, for $200 a month, I I could serve there as a discipleship pastor while working as an engineer and going to school on Mondays, and my whole family could kind of be involved. And we were just basically a little bit ahead of everybody that was coming to follow Jesus. And so while I'm growing, I'm just pouring into new believers the things that that, uh, the Lord's teaching us and passing those on. And that's very much the way discipleship works. So like I said, we were a church plant, and, and actually uh, we adopted a, an unengaged, unreached people group through the IMB, uh, the Yadav of India, uh, in 2002, and I started leading teams over to India in 2003. Then in 2004, uh, while in India, and we found out the IMB had never had anyone living there, and, and I just was broken for the people and said, Lord, somebody needs to live here. And he's like, well, what about you? So I went home and again, we prayed about it. And about nine months later, we both really felt the Lord saying, Yes, you need to go. And so we started the process with IMB and we moved to India in 2006. And again, by just listening to the Holy Spirit in terms of his timing and his methodology, what he wanted us to do there, the Lord allowed us to see tremendous fruit. And then in 2016, the Lord shifted us to the Middle East and we were there for about three and a half years. And then now I'm actually the director of global research at the headquarters of the International Mission Board in Richmond, Virginia, in a job that combines engineering, software, love of God, and a desire to see the gospel get out to all the nations. Right? So God brings these pieces together. So that's the core of my story. But the reality is that God desires that every single person be saved and come to knowledge of the truth, he also desires to show everyone why he made them the way he did. So if you're a follower of Christ, and I know there are many of you in here, I'll start here with you all just for a second, and that is, last week you heard your ambassadors from Pastor Chris, and he's right. And I hope you heard in this testimony today that it's the collective effort of followers of Christ listening to the Holy Spirit of when to open their mouths, have an answer, be ready to give a reason at the right time. It wasn't just one thing that I heard one time, you know, that in my case that drew me to salvation. It was a number of individuals and encounters. It happens that way a lot. God really orchestrates these things all over the world. In fact, in South Asia, I had the privilege of discipling two South Asian pastors for many years, uh, helping them become church planners and pastors, Rajesh and Deepak. One time, Rajesh and Deepak went to a village where, as far as they knew, the gospel had never been. And so they traveled 30, 40 kilometers to this village and and went in and they were praying through the village. And as they were getting ready to leave the village, two men were sitting on this wall and they said, What are you doing here? And Rajesh replies, Well, I'm a follower of Jesus. he was about to say, and I'm here to give God's peace on this village, but the guy cut him off. He goes, stop. He calls some guy out of a a hut. He says, these two men follow Jesus, and he wasn't in a pleasant voice. That guy goes, come with me. So they're a little bit nervous. They follow this guy into his hut and sit down, and the guy proceeds to tell them that 15 years prior, while he was getting his MBA in the capital city, he'd gotten a little piece of a, of a track, basically, of a little pamphlet about Jesus, just a little piece. And he'd been waiting 15 years for somebody to tell him who this Jesus was. So they shared the gospel with this guy, and he decided to follow Christ that day. And within two months, 25 baptized believers were meeting together in that little village. So God had used somebody at the right time in the right place in the capital city to to set a seed for 15 years later. And that's the thing. Be ambassadors. You don't know when that little seed is going to take root in the future. So be ready. Be abiding in Christ. Let your light shine. I mean, you can't really hide a light. I mean, you can. You can put it under a basket. Jesus kind of says don't do that, right? Um, Jesus actually says you are a city on the hill, right? You're supposed to be there. You you can't hide it. So be ambassadors. Now if you're here today and all the things that I've been talking about this morning, some of them have resonated with you, but there's a lot of words and vocab that are like, man, this makes no sense to me. Um, Things are confusing possibly. It's all right. you're not alone. I was totally there. But I want to talk to you for just a few minutes. I wish I could just reach Into your heart and your soul, and let you just taste very, very briefly an experience of what it's like to have God's Spirit living inside of you. If I did that, if you tasted and experienced how good the Lord is and how much joy it is to be forgiven, how awesome it is to know Him intimately, to learn about yourself, to learn yourself, to learn your purpose. You'd want it for yourself. I know you would. But I can't do that. It does not work that way. I can't reach into your heart like that. You have to seek, and you have to ask for yourself. But it turns out, on the good side of things, that God doesn't want anyone to perish like we said. He wants everyone to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. He doesn't want to make it hard, and he, he actually hasn't made it hard to find him. So I'm going to put a Bible passage up on the screen here. I'm going to read through a small piece of Luke 11. Uh, Luke is a piece of the good news. Uh, it's one of the Gospels, or good news. that was written down. In chapter 11, Jesus is talking, Jesus himself, and he says these words, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Now, suppose one of your fathers is asked by a son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? That's rhetorical, right? No. Or he has asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who seek him, to ask him? Sorry. Holy Spirit to those who ask him. So the first thing Jesus said was ask, but we're actually going to talk about that last because Jesus said it first because it's really the main point here that you've got to ask. But We're going to start with seek. So for those of you that are here just listening and learning, first thing I want to say, just like Jesus says here, is seek. I cannot urge you enough to seek God now, because there is a God who loves you and is pursuing you. Don't wait. The dumbest thing you could actually do is to stop asking questions, to stop thinking, to simply try and forget and act like you're not going to die someday forget what's coming, the best thing you can do is to seek answers, seek the truth. Faith is not an absence of intellect. Faith is not blind. The Indiana Jones movie got it wrong. It's not, it's not Indiana Jones standing on the lion's head with his eyes closed and going like that. That is not what faith is. It was never intended to be a blind leap. It's actually a w- eyes wide open leap. It's trusting in a God who is there, the God who actually makes all of this creation and all of our realities of our life make sense. Seek. So think for a minute. Let's just put on our thinking caps for a second. And let's just put ourselves in the shoes of an atheist, right, or in atheist belief. And that was kind of a mix of atheist agnostic, I guess you'd say, it's tough to be a true atheist. That's some serious blind faith, by the way, which I'm going to show uh, how, why that's so, such a blind faith thing. Atheism really has no accounting for the inner person, the soul or the spirit. Um, so I encourage you, when you get a chance, sit down and kind of take what you believe to the extreme and see how it plays out. Let me give you an example from one of my philosophy, philosophy professors, Dr. Blunt. All right, so here's an example. So I was walking around at the, the top of my stairs in my house with my laptop computer, Tosh, the Toshiba laptop, and, um, and I love Tosh, I mean, I do all kinds of stuff on him, you know, Word Perfect, I'm kidding, uh, Word, you know, Microsoft Word, et cetera, but I love my laptop. So anyway, so I'm walking around at the top of the stairs and he slips out of my hands, and he goes tumbling down the stairs, my laptop, and he smashes into pieces at the bottom of the stairs. So I, I just run downstairs, and I get down on my hands and knees, and I start weeping and wailing, and Tosh, and I'm trying to put the pieces back together, and, and, and my wife and I, we, we go into mourning. morning, we, we wear black for like two months, and, and we're just, and we're not eating, we're not drinking, we're just feeling absolutely horrible about Tosh. You guys would think I'm nuts, right? Why? Why would I be nuts? Because it's a machine. It's not alive. Are humans just machines? What if I drop my son down the stairs, and he was dead? He was broken to pieces at the bottom. That's a much different scenario, right? Why is that different? If you're an atheist, there should be no difference. Why is that different? It's because people are alive. What makes them alive? They have souls, they have spirits, they have bodies, and each person is unique. They are irreplaceable, and they are of immense value to God, which is why they're of immense value to you. But you might say, well, what about all the evil done in the name of religion? Well, I'm really glad you asked that question, Because actually, according to the three-volume encyclopedia of war by Phillips and Axelrod, of the 1,763 wars over the past 5,000 years, only 123, less than 7%, were fought in the name of religion. In the 20th century alone, ideologies based on atheism, fueled by unbelief, Hitler, Stalin, World War I, World War II. They have killed, murdered, and tortured more than all religions in history. So take atheism out to its end view. Take not believing. So I'm just asking you, I'm telling you, research the facts, seek the truth, seek if God is there, and once you know he is, ask how God has revealed himself. Because all religions and representations of God are not equal. Which one is correct? They can't all be correct. They have widely different claims about truth. But I would say the proof is actually out there. There is so much evidence for the God of Christianity and for Christianity, and so little evidence against it that I had no idea about. So seek. The other thing Jesus says is knock. Knock, because God is not far from you. Don't be complacent in your own destruction. If you heard last week, you heard Pastor Chris talk about that the, the sin is our biggest problem. Well, if you're like me when you, you know, didn't know anything about this religious stuff, what's sin? What is it? Is it just, you know, gambling or smoking or what is it? Well, the Bible actually tells us what it is. And the Apostle Paul in Romans 2.16, which we're going to put on the screen here, has a very simple explanation without using the word sin of what it is. Paul says, on the day when according to my gospel, and gospel just means good news. So Paul's saying this is really good news, guys. God will judge the secrets of men, secrets of people, through Christ Jesus what does that mean? Well, that means that there's, even if nobody else knows about it, there's stuff that you've done that we've all done or stuff that we know is not right that we've done. It doesn't matter if your spouse knows. It doesn't matter if your pastor knows. It doesn't matter if anybody else knows. God knows. And you'll actually face judgment. That's what sin is. The stuff that you know deep down inside isn't right that you've done or think. And it will be judged through Christ Jesus. So why is that good news? That doesn't sound very good. It's because it's that awakening, that awareness of where you're headed. That hot flash of death, right? That sense of impending judgment. But God wants to save you. So who wouldn't actually want to live a life full of joy? I'm not talking about psychobabble nonsense, but actual power from God to overcome those desires that wage war within you. The most intellectual and rational worldview is that of Christianity. Only when you kind of really dig into it, you'll find it explains not only why the world is the way it is, but it provides the only real solutions for fixing the way the world is. So if you call yourself an intellectual or a scientist or anything at all, just keep knocking on that door of truth. I was blown away when I started knocking on that door and seeking by how rational and scientifically plausible believing in God and that sal- and, and the salvation of God through Jesus Christ is. And then finally, which is the first thing Jesus says, is ask. Ask. There is this energy source, basically, God's Holy Spirit, that we are disconnected from. We don't even know we're missing it until we get connected to it. We just know something's not right, deep down inside. But until we restore that connection with God through Jesus Christ, there's no switch that we can flip ourselves. There's no power we can access to fix our own lives. We try different things, but nothing really works. I tried a number of things for many years, especially tried a bunch of things when I was having those night terrors. As we already read in Luke eleven thirteen, ask, God will give you. He, he's not going to give you a snake. He's not going to give you a scorpion. He will give you the Holy Spirit. He'll give you a new life, a new creation. The Bible says if anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Ask for it. If you ask for it, you just come to the Lord. You just come before God. Confess your life's not perfect. Ask God to redeem your life through Jesus Christ. Don't be prideful. Don't be stubborn. So seek Ask, so pardon me, so ask, seek, and knock. So I know some of you came with a person who invited you. You can ask that person. Ask questions, seek, knock, talk to them. You can talk with Pastor Chris. You can talk to any of the other pastors here. You can even email me. I'm very happy to talk with you. That's my email address. Take a photo of that, whatever you want to do. I'll be happy to try to answer any question that I can, or at least try to point you to the right person who can, because the answers are there. The truth is out there. So ask, seek, and not. I'm going to ask Pastor Chris to come and close us in prayer. Thank you all.